My name is Summer. And my name is Nicole. And we are financial advisors. This is the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast. We have worked with many widows during our careers. Although we are not widows, we see the need for solid financial education before and after losing a spouse. We do this by telling stories from widows and our own lives. Welcome to the He's Gone, But the Money's Not podcast. We're very excited to have Jasmine on our podcast today. So Jasmine, take it away. Introduce yourself. Tell us all about you. Sure. Uh, My name is Jasmine Hathaway, and um, I met my husband, Alan, um, when we were both living in Washington, D.C. And so he lived um, in the Capitol Hill area, and I lived outside of the city, and we just kind of connected and explored um, the area together. Um, He was working for a senator at the time, and I was in the nonprofit world. Um, And we just kind of instantly connected. Um, It was really uh, exciting and fun. And as soon as we started realizing that this was something that uh, we could see a future together, we immediately started talking about kind of big things, big kind of like purchases and houses and dogs and yards and that kind of um, fun stuff that you do when you're like newly in love. And so we quickly realized that the Washington DC area um, was not going to be the place where we could make that happen <laughs> on, on a Capitol Hill salary and a, a nonprofit salary. It just like, we were looking at like a three hour commute into work. <laughs> it just was not going to happen for us. And so, um, so when we decided to move outside of um, the DC area, we chose his hometown, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and, um, and Chattanooga is a cute little town that's built along a river. It's really nice, um, and small. And he still had a ton of family that lived in the area. Um, and so we got married in Chattanooga and, um, found out that we were expecting our first child, um, pretty quickly after about a year or so into our marriage. And, um, and we, you know, continued to dream together. We had lots of big plans and um, lots of, you know, future adventures that we wanted to go on and bring our little baby bears, what we called her. And, um, and so, you know, a couple of, uh, well, it was really eight months into my pregnancy. So we were very much into like parenting, buying cribs and nesting hardcore um, that he went to the doctor and was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So um, things changed pretty quickly after that. And and you said you're eight months pregnant, right? At this point? Oh, yeah. Extremely pregnant. I found out there's a point in a pregnancy where people start telling you that you're very pregnant, and I was definitely there. So so I was waddling through oncology um wards and people were saying like you're in the wrong place maternity is somewhere else you know so um it was wild it was wild so we were really like you know and and normally we're used to the healthcare system moving pretty slowly you know like it takes a long time to get an appointment and all this stuff well when you're dealing with a terminal cancer diagnosis things move really fast like crazy fast so that was really um, a lot to take in. Uh, and we just kind of like kind of got swept along in this like current of information and like appointments that we had to make. And, 
you know, like it was one decision after another that we needed to like quickly make for his health and like to make sure that he had enough time with us. You know, he wanted to meet his child and of course we wanted him to be with us as long as possible. So um, we, I mean, you name it, surgery, radiation, chemo, all the things like we had family that were swooping in to help with like hotel stays because we went down to MD Anderson and like did, did the whole thing. So, um, and then somewhere in that journey, um, I had my daughter, we were new parents as well. So it was, um, it, you know, not ideal is what I'll say, (laughs) not ideal to be, uh, caregiver for your spouse who is very sick from treatments and also being trying to figure out how to be a new parent at the same time. Yeah. And like no sleep during that new parent phase. Oh, right. Exactly. Like, no, I was already not sleeping. So like, I just, you know, I'm, I'm running on fumes really like for that entire period. It was just, um, a lot. It was a lot. When you got the diagnosis, like how long did they say, like, what did he live? I, I honestly do not remember a timeline, you know, like I, I think I remember them speaking in months, but like, I, I don't remember exactly if it was, you know, 12 to 18 months or some, something else. I mean, we, we just kind of like quickly put that out of our minds and like, just tried to focus on like as much time as possible and like making the most of the time that we had together. Yeah. Great. So you're running on fumes, trying to survive. And how was being a new parent for him? Um, I mean, he loved being a parent. It was really cute. It was really (laughs) precious to see um, them interact and play. And, you know, um, I, I just, uh, it, it was tough because he was so sick at the, at that time, you know, he wanted to like be more active, but luckily she wasn't moving too much. And so, you know, he could sort of like stay in one place and like be with her. Um, but yeah, it's just, um, I think a lot of the like memories that I have are overshadowed by this, like, um, conversation that was sort of running in the background of like, he's not going to see her grow up. So, you know, he, he would stop what, what we were doing, you know, giving her a bath or whatever, and just say like, you know, I, I know like, I'm not going to be around for forever. And so, um, he definitely had that realization and that was really hard to, like know how to handle that and know like the right thing to say at at a moment like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. So then what happened? How long, how did the treatments keep going? Yeah. So, um, so really, you know, we, we didn't see it coming, I guess, but when he finally passed, but it was a little, um, I, I think it was about a year and a half into my daughter's life. So he, he lasted almost, um, two years into his cancer di- diagnosis. Um, and so it, he passed away, um, and everything sort of changed in my life. <laughs> like I, you know, I, I think 
what I've tried to do is sort of paint the picture of like how overwhelming it was even before he passed. Like there's no extra brain space. Like I, I'm also working full time. Like there, there was no conversation about what was to happen after he passed away. And so, um, so I was really uh, wholly unprepared. Like this was something that, you know, I had never had any conversations with anyone about the cost of funerals and like what, you know, what you needed to like have together as far as like anecdotes or speakers or like music that you wanted played or like just so many decisions that people were looking to me to make. Um, and I was like, I, I just, I don't know what you want from me, but I can't, I have nothing to give. Like I, I cannot, um, I can't function. Like I just am at my max right now. Um, and so one of the things that happened was, um, you know, I just, somewhere along the way, I had a great, um, social worker with hospice who was very helpful with some of the early decisions and like practical matters that I was faced with. Um, but she was super amazing and I wanted her to stay. I wanted her to like continue helping me because the, the decisions didn't go away, but she couldn't. I mean, she, their, their role is so focused on helping people at the end of their lives that like after the person has passed who's in hospice, they're, they're just not able to really continue supporting any longer. They have to move on to other clients. And so, um, I got a death certificate back from the funeral home that had um, my husband's last name on my name. So I hadn't never changed my last name. And they gave me a death certificate with a name that I had no documentation that that was me. So I, um, I was like, well, I mean, what do I do? Who made the mistake? Who can fix it? You know, I just... I, I sort of went down this rabbit hole where I was just um, trying to figure out like, okay, it came from the funeral home, but they're not the ones who can fix it. It's vital records. And then it's county vital records who got sent to state vital records. And it was just a mess. So that was five months of being on the phone with all kinds of people trying to fix this issue. Whoa, that's crazy. It was awful. And, you know, so without a death certificate, you really can't do anything. No. Close bank accounts. You can't, you know, like prove that this person has passed away. So, like, I'm not responsible for paying things in his name. Like, I, I, it's, you know, like, there's, that I can tell you what happened, but I have no proof. I, I have no like way of showing you that I'm the person who is in charge of making these decisions and kind of cleaning up these affairs. N- nothing could happen. Absolutely nothing. Um, so that, that was really overwhelming because, you know, I not only had no experience and no understanding of this kind of world that can hit you after someone dies and, and you're the person who is responsible, you know, the executor or the administrator or whatever. But, um, you know, I, I was staying up until like 2 a.m. Googling, am I actually responsible for my husband's student loan? Like they're, they're calling and telling me that I am, 
but I don't think that I am. So like, is this actually like a thing that I need to be worried about? Or like, these people are just calling and harassing me. And I don't know what's true. Yeah, yeah. So and you didn't have any resources, right? Or anybody to ask or to help you with any of that? Correct? Did you find yeah. anybody who was helpful? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I felt like I was alone. You know, like after my husband died, I felt very alone because I didn't have any peers, any like friends or like other people in my life that I felt like understood what I was going through. Um, There are not very many young widows, you know, 30 is a very young age to be widowed. And so um, I went to a couple like support groups and things like that. And the vast majority, I felt like were in completely different Basis, you know, my husband and I had been married for less than three years. And so a lot of the widows at the groups that I visited had been married for 40, 50 years. And, and, you know, it's just a different kind of like, um, experience. And I was in Chattanooga, which is where his family is and not my family. And so I felt very disconnected from like resources, because I just didn't have anybody who was up, up in it with me to, you know, to kind of like, summarize that feeling like, you had to be really like, in my business to know what I was facing at the time, because I wasn't really coming out and saying like, you know, am I responsible for this bill? Or like, I, I just am a very um, independent person who has trouble asking for help on a good day. And so like, I just, I really struggled to know like what things I could even ask for help with and like who to ask. Yeah, that's really rough. So what did you do? Like, what have you found since then to help you navigate? Yeah. Well, um, I couldn't believe that there wasn't a person (laughs) like, you know, I, I really just, my understanding of, you know, what happens after somebody dies is that there's, support groups and there's professionals who kind of know this space. But um, it turned out that that actually um, wasn't necessarily true. And so I felt like I was in this world where, um, where I was uh, dealing with a lot of things that didn't cleanly fall into the realm of like what an attorney typically handles. And um, I didn't have, you know, large resources and investments that a financial professional would typically get involved with. You know, when when people ask me about the estate, right? So that was something that credit card companies would say, well, the estate can pay for it. And I I said that that's really funny because there is no estate. Like we don't have a like chateau in France. Like the the estate <laughs> is like not a word that we you know talk about here. So I, I really just, I just was like, there, there is no money to take. Like, good luck. Like, there's, there's nothing. We got nothing. So, um, so in the, in the situation that I was in, I just wanted somebody who was like a project manager for this. You know, like I just, in the, in the space that I was in, in this like grief fog, just really difficult slog is, is what I felt. I wanted somebody who like, who I could trust, who could keep track of what I had already done and what I hadn't done and the follow-up that I needed to do and the forms I needed to fill out and all of this like admin stuff. 
And so, um, after a, a number of years of getting, you know, my life together, um, I actually started a business designed specifically to help that situation. So the, the admin work that is not, um, the realm of like a, um, specialized professional. So we, I could come alongside people and say like, okay, you need daycare for your daughter or you need, you know, like to figure out what to do, um, with this house that's standing empty or like whatever it is that that is something that I can help you with. Cause I, I can use these skills that are back now of organization, of project management, of, you know, just kind of like, um, being able to be resourceful and tenacious to solve problems for people who are not in a space where they can really do it for themselves. Yeah. So what's your business called? So my business is called Compass Coordinators. And, um, and then I connected with other women who were doing the same thing as I was. Um, I didn't know that when I started Compass Coordinators, but Mm -hmm. I, um, I, after I sort of put up my website and had my social media, other people started finding me in other states. And so we together started figuring it out. Like, what do you do when you come across some of these roadblocks, you know, just commiserating, like, this is really hard work. Like, how do you take care of yourself when you're showing up for people who have lost a loved one? Um, and so together we founded a company called PALS, which stands for Professionals of After Loss Services. And we are a community for after loss professionals. And we're also training other people how to do this work. So we can really create this like huge army is what we call it of people equipped to show up in that space between these specialized professionals to help with the admin work. Oh, wow. So would you say you're almost like a social worker for somebody after they've had a loss, like you take care of all the things? Yeah, exactly. So that, that social worker interaction that I had was definitely formative, um, in, in kind of coming up with what this could look like, because, um, that, that I just love that so much. Like, oh, you have these resources. Like you had, you know, like which places to go to, which people, you know, are going to be the best price or like whatever. And so I, um, I definitely use pieces of the social worker model, pieces of, uh, like the the project manager kind of person, but definitely lots of inspiration from that wedding coordinator as well. You know, just like thinking through like a huge life transition, what do I need to show up for that person so they don't have to worry about every little thing? Yeah, that's awesome. Because I we see people all the time that I'm like, how would you have done this without us? And yeah, and and typically you're right with the financial advisor. We usually have people come because they have money and they want help investing their money or moving it into their own name. But if you don't have money, how are you supposed to navigate all this stuff? Sure, Who do you go to yeah. is it the financial advisor? Not usually, but yeah, that's yeah. rough. So anyway, I think what you guys are doing is really awesome. So Thanks. tell me about your like you said you worked full time while your husband was sick, and then after he died, right? What were you doing? Yes. So I was working at a wonderful company as a digital marketing manager and then director. So I was leading a team of internet marketing specialists. How was that juggling your being caretaker for your husband, being a mom, and a full time yeah. job? Yeah, I, I, um, I really don't know how I would have gone through it without the amazing workplace that I had that was so understanding and supportive and 
you know, they, they let me show up how I needed to show up, which was a huge. So I was able to work um, remotely in some cases, like from hospitals when there's long waiting periods and things like that. And I was also allowed to show up and be normal, you know, and like not talk about cancer if I didn't want to talk about cancer. And so they, they really were wonderful um, because they knew that I needed some flexibility and also just like a place where I didn't, I, I didn't need to feel like forced to show up in a certain way that I didn't feel was authentic to me at the time. Yeah, that's great. And did you have any benefits through work? Like, um, well, and I guess what was Alan doing? Was he working during this time too? Um, Alan actually was not working um, for the the months before he was diagnosed. Um, he had um, he'd worked for a mayoral campaign and done some work um, in one of his cousin's restaurants and things like that. But he he was not working, and so he very quickly went on disability um, and was approved right away. So that that was social security disability. Yes, exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that that was a blessing to have that. Um, but yeah, that um, that balance of me working and needing to like bring in that income while we were um, spending tons of money on medical bills and travel was it was a lot. It was a lot of pressure. Yeah, and so he didn't have benefits then since he wasn't currently with a you know formal workplace. Did your exactly. work provide any spousal benefits or anything that helped during this time? Nope. Nope. They didn't have anything like that because they were um, a very small company. And so even just me being able to be on short-term disability during my uh, maternity leave, I, I think I got like nine, 10 weeks of maternity leave. Um, that was the only thing that I we had at the time. What about um, life insurance? Do you guys have any life insurance? Yeah. Um, so we knew that getting life insurance when you're about to be parents was an important thing. And so um, I had life insurance through my work, but because he wasn't working, he had to go you know, into the market and find life insurance. And so he was um, almost through the process. They had like underwriting evaluation process. Um, he had one more appointment with the life insurance company Bef- uh, after he got diagnosed with cancer. So because of the diagnosis of cancer, he was ineligible for life insurance. So zero life insurance for, for him. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are still in the building process and you're, you know, right. So you didn't have a lot of other assets. Did you own a home? We did not own a home. We were living in um, Alan's childhood home. So um, yeah, we were renting from his mom. Yeah. Wow. And then you mentioned there's some credit card debt. Did the medical bills build up some debt? Yep. Medical bills um, and credit credit card debt. I found out that I was not responsible for credit cards that were in his name. Um, and so d- just to clarify, this was in the state of Tennessee, so it's different in different places, but I was not responsible for debt in his name. So I, I did have some debt that um, you know, he, we had accumulated together. So things that were in both of our names, um, I was still responsible for. So previously, you know, while we were both working, we were both contributing to paying those bills. But then when he passed away, then it was just me who was responsible. 
Um, so those, those stresses were real and huge. And so, um, on top of that, the costs of the funeral and things like that, um, the, the cremation, we just, I, I was completely unprepared. We did not have enough savings built up to handle that kind of hit. Yeah. Yeah. Most people aren't at that age being so young. And most people haven't thought about life insurance. It's great that you guys were already thinking about it, having a kid. So, but, um, did you, so you, what did you find out on the student loans? You, you said that you are searching on student loans if you are responsible or not. Yeah. Yeah. Because he had the student loans before we even got together. Um, I, I was not ultimately responsible for those, but, um, somehow, they got my information. And so this um, university that shall not be named in this great state of Texas um, was very insistent that I was responsible for those student loan payments. Um, and so I, I ultimately, after some very strong words, was able to get them to see reason <laughs> that, they, that they had no recourse to collect from me. But um, but yeah, it was, it was a really tough time that, that was one of the more persistent, I would say bill collectors, um, after my husband passed away. Wow. So, cause you know, you work with a lot of people, right. And you've seen a lot of situations. Um, is that normal that bill collectors will come after people, even if you're not responsible? Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, why not try? Right. So like a lot of these companies will, um, take advantage of people's, overwhelm or lack of knowledge or, or whatever it is. And if they're able to find somebody that they think they can convince to pay these bills, they absolutely will tell them anything to get, to get that money. Wow. That's crazy. And yeah. just to clarify, you mentioned it was because he had the student loans before you're married. What if he had accumulated them while you were married? Well, so if I, if I was a co-signer, then I, I, could, I would have been responsible. So like if you co-sign any kind of loan, then you are responsible when that person passes away. So I, I was not anywhere listed on anything, um, for his student loans. So that, that's why I wasn't responsible. Yeah, that's great. So starting a business, how long after your husband died, did you start your business? That seems like a big undertaking. Yeah. Yeah. It was five years. So it, it took five years to feel like I could um, show up in like a healthy, emotionally available space to be there for other, especially other widows who have similar stories to mine as primarily who I work with, with compass coordinators. And so um, it is very tough work, um, especially when it hits you very close to home. So I really had to make sure that I had um, taking care of myself and gotten myself in a very like stable position. Um, and at this point, I had already gotten remarried as well. So I had the additional financial security and support from my husband, um, my now husband. And so he was very supportive and encouraging of me following this dream and really like making a difference for other people. So they didn't have to go through what I went through. Yeah, that's great. Starting a business can be a little bit risky. It was hard emotionally, and was there any bumps along the way? Well, um, I started my business like right at 
COVID. <laughs> so <laughs> um, when you talk about risk, yes, there's absolutely risk when you're starting a business in the best of times in like norm, normal quote unquote. But um, yeah, I, I had already put up my website and kind of like started the business idea um, moving forward. I had done a lot of work on a business plan and things like that, but hadn't filed the LLC. And so I, when we shut down for COVID, we were at home and, you know, things were paused at my full-time job. And so I just was like, well, you know, why not? Like, I might as well go ahead and file the paperwork and like get this thing going, you know, started working with an attorney who um, was, you know, of course working remotely. And so we got everything going as far as like legally and, um, and like requirement wise, um, to start compass coordinators. And, um, and then I just kind of was like, well, I, um, I think this is going to be a thing, you know, and maybe COVID is like actually not a bad time to start a business. Um, that that's what I was thinking anyways, you know, we were just very unsure of everything, but I felt very compelled to like follow this journey. And, and it really does feel like a calling for me. So it, it, of course, there have been moments where I was um, unsure if this was the right path, but the overall, I feel very um, pulled to do this kind of work to really like um, make the most of, of my experience. You know, like it, it's a really big challenge to kind of look at something that's happened to you that you had no say in, right? And and you can say like, well. Um, even if I had done, you know, a million things differently, he still would have had cancer. And like, I, there's nothing you can do about that. Like bad things can happen without you saying so. Right. And so I really felt like I, the, the opposite lesson from that, uh, that I took away from it was that, um, good things can happen too. Right. If, if bad things can happen without you, like working super hard to like, you know, manifest them in your life, then good things can come to you if you're open to them as well. And so that that's really been my whole kind of like a reason for being after Alan passed was just being open to joy and love and good things coming to me too. And so one of the things that I needed to do there was um, be open to talking to Luke, who's now my wonderful husband, and open to experiences that I might've felt too scared to do before, you know, like be brave and just put yourself out there and like, you never know what's going to happen. And so now three years into this like entrepreneurial journey and having two businesses now, like it, I just am so grateful for everything that that's come in my way. It's been amazing. You talked a lot about, your career, your career now, and, and when Alan had passed away, what have you seen in your experience, both in your own life and people you've helped? How does a career help with grief or distract? Or like, how do, how do you work that into your life when you lose someone? Does it kind of help distract people? Or is mm -hmm. it just like a nuisance? Because everybody needs an income. So I just kind of want to know more about your perspective with a career. Yeah. Well, so, um, so I can speak for myself. You know, I, I mentioned that my job was really amazing in letting me show up in 
feel like I was a normal, like productive human, <laughs> like that I had some like semblance of control in my life. And so that, that was really important to me. But I will say that a lot of people don't feel that way. A lot of people, their whole world has been shaken. And so like a lot of uh, widows, especially that I work with, feel like um, nothing matters. <laughs> like, why are you coming to me with this? I hate this job, you know, or or whatever it is, like something that maybe I could like muster some interest or passion for before my husband passed. Now get out of my face. Like I do not want to talk to you about coding or you know, whatever human issue that you have, you know, human resources related or whatever it could be, it's just, it feels so small because everything else is taking up so much brain space. And most workplaces, I would say, are not equipped to know how to handle that. You know, like a lot of, um, a lot of research has been done around like productivity loss. Um, when people are grieving. And so there are some movements being made to try to show up a little bit better for grieving people and um, provide more resources. So they feel supported um, with the ultimate goal of productivity, you know, so that's a very like um, business kind of corporate line, like reason for being, <laughs> but, you know, but from a like human perspective, like, I really just think that um, this is an issue that everyone um, deals with. Americans don't know how to handle grieving people. We don't have the words. We don't have the like understanding to um, know how to be. And so, like a lot of the times, um, the the like platitudes that come to mind fall totally flat. Right. So like well-meaning coworkers or managers or whatever say things like, um, you know, he's in a better place or like everything happens for a reason or, you know, um, I'm so sorry for your loss. And so like diff- different people react to those different ways. Right. So I, I'm very hesitant to make like sweeping statements that like those are always terrible. <laughs> but like in my case, I just I would have rather people said nothing at all than say those things to me. So I, I just, um, I think that the more work we can do to try to like, listen to people and like, just, you know, show up with curiosity about like how they're feeling and what they're going through. Um, that is much more real and meaningful, just showing up and like being willing to like sit with someone while they're going through something I mean, that, those are the things that really stuck with me. Like the, the friends that, that came and just sat, you know, and just weren't afraid if I were crying or laughing or whatever, they just like, let me be, which is something that I said earlier about my workplace too. Like that is really to me, the goal is, is to be open and flexible enough to let grieving people experience their grief, however they need to experience it. And don't expect them to be a certain way. Like if they're not crying, that's probably their choice. You know, like you don't have to like be concerned that like something's wrong because their person just died, but they're not crying all the time. Or on the flip side, if they are crying all the time and that is like 
something they can't control, then like that is also, it has to be okay. Like you, you can't like force someone to, um, be on a certain timeline or like express their feelings in a certain way. Cause grief is a very like individual experience. Right. Yeah. And you, so you've worked with a lot of widows and through your business now, right? Can you give us some examples of like cases you've worked on or like clients you've been able to help? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so let's see. Um, one of my, uh, early clients is, um, a woman who was just amazing and she, um, lost her husband to cancer as well. Um, and her husband was, uh, in the army for a number of years. And so he, um, was retired military. And so he had, um, some pending cases, right? So some like Asian orange, um, investigations that were still open. Um, and the widow had to figure out what needed to happen. You know, what benefits was she eligible for with, you know, just him being retired, retired military, and then also being additionally eligible for some benefits there and navigating the VA, um, with my client was really eye opening. I mean, it was just wild. The things that she was, um, asked to do and like, uh, so many forms, so many forms that she was had, having to fill out. Um, so many trips to the, you know, post office and the bank and dealing with, um, insurance that went up for no reason, you know, like just taking her husband off of insurance. Um, she, so she really just had a lot of questions and was really kind of doubting herself because she had not been alone for, you know, 45 years. So she had never really had to figure a lot of these things out. Very capable, like super smart, but just, you know, kind of unsure and worried about things falling through the cracks. And so a lot of what I did was just kind of, um, I would show up and sort of coach her through the process a little bit and hold her accountable and just kind of break things down into very small pieces. So she wouldn't get super overwhelmed by everything that she was having to do. Yeah. Crazy. And yeah, military benefits and federal benefits are messy. So now you have a lot of experience with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that really, um, opened my eyes to that particular, um, scenario, a widow with, um, military benefits to navigate. Um, and then there are lots of other people that I've helped with just, um, a lot of technology issues and a lot of financial questions. So, um, a lot of the times there's some division of labor in a relationship. It's just, you know, it's how it shakes out for whatever reason. There are different skill sets and, um, interests and things like that. So, um, when the other half of that equation is gone, um, it can be very overwhelming and, um, scary to suddenly have to learn a bunch of stuff that your husband had taken care of the whole time. I mean, that, that happened to me as well. Like I, I feel like I, was pretty well versed in, um, technology and, uh, accounts and things like that. But my husband, Alan was building computers and like, that is a level that I was not at. And so, you know, we had, um, Wi-Fi that I didn't know the password to. We had, 
a tablet that I couldn't get into that I just got so frustrated with, I threw it in the trash. So like perfectly good technology, so angry at not being able to use it that I just, I couldn't. And so that's, that's a situation that I help people with too, like finding the right information to make sure that they are set up. So if, if something were to break or if they were to get locked out of different accounts, how can they figure that out and make sure that they have access to everything that they need? Um, yeah. And that that's something that, that I, I really like doing. Yeah. As you've worked with people, like what's, I don't know, what are your biggest takeaways, like lessons that you would share with other widows or people who, whose spouses are terminally ill? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the biggest thing that I would say is um, don't be afraid to have these hard conversations. <laughs> I mean, it just, that is the one thing that I, if I could go back and tell myself something, that is the one thing I would say, like push through the discomfort, um, it, especially around like, um, finances in particular, like you, it is so important to not have secrets, um, that that person can take to their grave, but that their widow finds out later. So like, unpaid tax bills. That was a fun thing that I found in, in a book on our shelf. So, you know, it just, it was like, um, there were all these secrets that I didn't even realize were being kept from me. And I, I think that the more open and the more healthy conversations that you can have with your better half, you know, the, the better off you're going to be if something happens. So you don't have this complete separation division of responsibility where you're just flying blind on a whole area of your kind of household. Um, it's important to share that information to know what's up um, and at least know how to find the information if you absolutely need it to. Um, so has that changed anything when you got remarried? Is there any like yeah. things that you've done as you've gotten remarried about how you manage your finances? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we have less separation. So, um, Alan and I had separate accounts and separate things going on. Um, and so now in my marriage, we talk about finances on a regular basis. Um, it's not fun. It's still not fun. <laughs> it's, it's not something that like either one of us really looks forward to, but it is really important to be on the same page and be working towards the same goals. And so, um, you know, it is very common for one person to be a saver and the other person to be a spender. And so, um, you can see things differently and have different priorities, but working and trying to see the other person's perspective and come to a place where you can, um, feel good about where your money is going. I think that's super, super important. Um, and we also have a whole like password manager set up so we can, um, so we can share uh, important accounts information and passwords and things like that. So there is the, um, there's the option to set up a, um, contingency plan. So if something were to happen, then my husband or another person that I choose would have access to all of my online accounts and the latest and like correct passwords for all of those. Yeah. Yeah. We have that too. Do you, uh, me and my spouse, because I've seen people's experiences with not being able to access accounts. Is that kind of why you guys do it too? Is A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. So much of our lives are lived online 
you know, and it's, it's easy to lose track of how many accounts you have and like what they're all doing out there, you know, whether you have saved credit card information or whatever it is out there and your spouse is responsible for finding those and keeping them from being used fraudulently. So a lot of times they really do need the password to be able to close that down and kind of um, tie that that loop there. Hmm. Have you had to help anybody with fraud on a deceased person like in your business? Have you seen that? No, most of what I do, because it happens, my engagements typically start around the time the death certificate comes in. So about two to four weeks after the person passes, what we're doing is preventative work. So um, definitely trying to move as quickly as possible to keep fraud from happening on a deceased person's account, Um, you know, going through every single possible avenue that we have to um, keep hackers from being able to open lines of credit and um, and use that saved credit card information um, for nefarious purposes. Yeah. And do you get like power of attorney for your clients to then go and do some of the work for them? Um, I do not. In Compass Coordinators, I decided that power of attorney was a little bit too much of like a... Um, a legal structure for what I actually needed to do for my clients. And so I have paperwork that names me an authorized agent, which can be used in certain scenarios. But mostly what I'm doing is showing up to like hold my client's hand through the process and make it as easy as possible, give them all the resources that they need. But it, it turns out to be pretty important to a lot of my clients to do some of that work themselves to like fully understand the landscape of their spouse's accounts and also really honor them by doing that work and, um, and closing it all out. Yeah, that's great. And I think that our takeaways, we've done a lot of these interviews with widows is the resources, the support group is so important and you're just like an extra support that can take care of all the loose ends, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of the the times our support system or our family are kind of spread out. And so having someone like an after loss professional like me or some of my peers all throughout the country can really help be sort of like the boots on the ground when you can't be there. So um, so uh, I talk to a lot of people who give my services as gifts and um, and really show up for each other and sort of build me into the community that surrounds the person um, who's having to go through this. Absolutely. Great. Um, Is there anything else that you would share with, you know, widows or other people that things you've learned as you've worked with your own clients and through your own experience? Yeah. I mean, I think the thought that I'd love to leave everyone with is just that um, you can do hard things. You know, like it, it can feel impossible and it can feel overwhelming and like easy to kind of run away from some of the hard things that you're facing after the loss of a spouse. But if you just trust yourself and know that you can get through it, I think one of the things that I see is that um, my experience and my grief come alongside me every day and it makes me stronger. It makes me realize that like I can do anything because I, went through that. So um, that that was a, a huge lesson for me. And I hope it's helpful for your listeners. Too. 
Thanks. I think your story is so inspiring because of what you experienced that you made it out. But not only that, that you pursued something that you're passionate about after a loss, which is this awesome career. And we'll, we'll link your resources in our show notes so people can check out your website. But I think that should inspire our listeners too. That's okay to, to change career paths, to pursue an interest um, after losing a spouse. Because like you said, you know, your whole perspective can change. So I think that's really awesome. Thanks for sharing. Thank you yeah. for having me. And well, can you share a little bit about the PALS program? Because you started your own business and now the PALS is to kind of help women do the career you're doing, right? That's right. Yeah. So we, we found a lot of other people who um, are interested in providing the support in their own communities. And so um, we didn't really have like a... Um, a manual, like a how-to <laughs> put together because we were each figuring it out on our own. And so what we did was um, we really decided to put community over competition and put our heads together and create that manual. And so what we put together is called the PALS training program. And we offer it twice a year. Um, and so that is a six-week online learning program where you can um, learn all the things that you need to know to become an after loss professional um, and start your own business if that's something you want to do or add a line of business to something you're already doing. And um, and we share all kinds of lessons from um, the mistakes that we've made along the way and just kind of help people shortcut a lot of that trial and error process so they can really get hit the ground running and um and go out and have an impact in people's lives um the way that we have because uh, it's really it's the need is only going to get greater we really firmly believe that yeah i see it all the time that people could use your services all the time and so what a fun career to be able to help people get into i guess fun sometimes right and a hard oh, reward rewarding is what yeah. i would say yeah there there are absolutely moments of fun. Um, you know, when I'm a animal person and so going to my clients' houses and getting to see their dogs and cats and love up on them, it's like, it's, it really is fun for me, but I really, um, I like getting to know new people and getting to really feel like I am having a meaningful impact on them. You know, I think that is really sustaining for me and a it's a really huge motivator to have this sense of purpose that, you know, Alan's death wasn't for nothing. Like this is part of his legacy is, um, is me using what I've learned and, um, helping other people. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jasmine. And, um, we appreciate you coming on the podcast day. And like Summer said, we're going to link all the links to your business and your website. If people want to check out either the training program or if they need some of your assistance with anything. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you want to know more about us and what we do, visit our website, rockhousefinancial.com. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Rockhouse Financial is an SEC registered investment advisor and the opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the opinions of Rockhouse Financial or any other sponsors of the podcast. 
All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.